Let me just begin by saying thank you to you as a church for inviting me to come. It is always a great privilege to be able to open God's word. It's also been a great privilege to hear of what God has been doing in all these different places. Again, my heart was thrilled to hear of what the Lord's been doing in Ecuador all these many years and what a joy it has been. Well, if you would take your Bibles and turn to Jonah chapter 4, it's page 775 if you're using the Pew Bible. And I mentioned uh, last night how there is this parallel structure where you have in chapters 1 and 2 this series where you have God's word to Jonah and Jonah's response, and then Jonah encountering these Gentile sailors, and then Jonah praying to God and the Lord speaking when he's in the fish. And then there's this kind of second way in which we have this deja vu again. The God's word comes to Jonah and Jonah responds in chapter 3. Jonah encounters Gentiles in Nineveh this time at the end of chapter 3. The beginning of chapter 4, then we see Jonah praying to the Lord and the Lord responding. This time not from the fish, but from Nineveh. So there's this parallel structure. But that still leaves the last part of the book of Jonah from verse 5 to 11. Uh, in chapter 4. And that means there's a section that's outside of this parallel structure, this seventh section. And as you'll see, that's really kind of the climax of this book. So tonight we're going to consider the last episode of the second half in the first part of chapter 4, but then we're going to focus upon the very last episode of the whole book that serves as the culmination of the message of the book of Jonah. To us. So please follow along as I read, starting there in verse 1 of chapter 4. We'll read the whole chapter. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. The Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Amen. Let's pray together again. O Lord, we know from your word that as a father shows compassion, to his children, so you show compassion to those who fear you. So Lord, as we come once again to you in reverence and in awe, we pray that you would show compassion on us this night once again by ministering to our souls through your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask it in Christ's name, amen. Our God is a God who gets to the heart of the matter which is matters of the heart. As the Lord said to Samuel, as he went to anoint the son of Jesse as the next king of Israel, he said, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. 
Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Jesus himself, you remember, taught his disciples that it's what comes out of a person that defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Christianity truly is a religion of the heart. And yet so often we can be blind to what's going on inside of our own hearts. Sin blinds us to its presence and it lurks in the depths of our hearts. That is, until the pressure and the heat of our circumstances brings out what's within, brings it up to be exposed on the surface. In the midst of our frustrations or our disappointments, our hearts are exposed. And this often occurs, as I'm sure our three missionaries and their wives can, can attest, this often occurs when you go to a new culture. Your heart's exposed as you're learning a new language and you have to humble yourself in all these different ways. You were that theater major and now you have to be quiet. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way, there the missionary may find what a narrow-minded, prejudiced, conceited, prayerless, fruitless, and uncooperative believer he really is in his heart of hearts. As a missionary once shared with him, I never knew what a heart of stone and filth I had until I went overseas. The missionary's heart is exposed. You see, that's what we have here in this passage with Jonah, the reluctant prophet who's now in a distant land, his heart is exposed. And so I want us to consider in this last chapter and see how the Lord exposes Jonah's heart and at the same time, how he exposes our own. And here's the three things that we'll see this evening. First, the long-lasting anger of Jonah in verses 1 to 5 and also in verse 9. But then secondly, we'll see the long-suffering compassion of the Lord, verses 6 to 9. And lastly, we'll consider a lingering question for us in verses 10 and 11. So let's begin then with this long-lasting anger of Jonah. In Jonah 4, verses 1 to 3, we see these angry accusations of Jonah against the Lord. You see, when Jonah saw the repenting of Nineveh and the relenting of the Lord from sending judgment, Jonah was, it says in verse 1, greatly displeased and exceedingly angry. Now, if you have the Pew Bible there, you'll notice in verse 1 there's a footnote, footnote 4. And if you look at the bottom, it says in the Hebrew it is that it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. What God did was exceedingly evil in Jonah's eyes. He looked at what took place and he made an assessment, a judgment, that what has happened here is a great evil. Now if you look through the rest of the book earlier and see how the word evil is used, it is God's assessment of things that are truly evil, like what the Ninevites were doing with their violence that was truly evil. But here, Jonah is making his own assessment. In Jonah's view, a great injustice has occurred. His sense of justice has been violated. And in his view, justice should have prevailed by Nineveh being destroyed, being burned with fire from heaven like Sodom and Gomorrah, receiving judgment, not mercy. As one commentator put it, ironically, just as Yahweh quenched his wrath, Jonah kindled his. Clearly, God's heart and Jonah's heart are not on the same wavelength. The dissonance between the two is jarring, and the disparity seems wider than the ocean. And the anger of Jonah's heart comes and spills itself out of his mouth in his prayer to the Lord. Prayer that begins in verse 2, O Lord. And when you hear that, you expect that there's going to be a request, a plea from God, or to God. 
In fact, uh, that's, that's what we see when that, that language is used earlier in the book. And there is a request that will come later. But what we have at the beginning of his prayer is Jonah's self-justification for his anger. We learn that Jonah has been arguing with God about going to Nineveh when he was still in Israel, which he calls my country. Is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? And now Jonah gives the reason for his flight to Tarshish back in chapter 1. And what was that reason? For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That's why. That's why he fled. What was the problem? The character of God is a God of grace and mercy. The root of Jonah's anger is God's gracious character. But not merely God's grace in general, but God's grace to Nineveh specifically. For Jonah sees his mercy to Nineveh as a violation and accuses God of at least two things, which we can see when we examine his statement about God's character and compare it with the original context in which that statement was made. He's quoting, of course, what God said to Moses when he shows Moses his glory and passes by. Moses there in the cleft of the rock and God passes by saying, the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now, listen to what he goes on to say. Exodus 34, verses 5 and 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. You see what Jonah omits. Of course, the great irony is that there's this sense of idolatry uh, that's going on. See, what Jonah is saying by his prayer is this. You've gone too far this time, God. You have let your mercy eclipse your justice. Yes, you should show mercy to certain sinners. But not to sinners like them. Not to pagan idolaters like them. They are beyond hope of mercy. Remember Jonah's prayer. Chapter 2, verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. They're beyond hope. And the great irony is that statement in Exodus 34 comes in the context of what? Of Israel committing horrid idolatry, right? Clearly, they had broken the first and second commandments that they had just received on Mount Sinai back in Exodus chapter 20. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment, you shall not make for yourself any carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or it's in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And then listen to what he says visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Do you hear the echoes of what the Lord says later in Exodus 34 that Jonah omits? Of course, Exodus 34 adds that God forgives iniquity and transgression and sin because that's what Israel learned from Exodus 32 to Exodus 34. They had committed a capital offense with the golden calf. They deserved to die for their idolatrous sin. But Moses intercedes for them, and the Lord shows them mercy. And Exodus 32, 14 says that the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. The very same language at the end of chapter 3 in Jonah. The Lord relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. Same phrase. 
You see, Jonah has a way of forgetting the depth of the sins of his own people and of forgetting the heinousness of his own sins. He thinks to himself, I've never been an idolater. I'm not like them. I'm not as bad as them. We can do the same thing. Whenever we minimize our own sins and magnify the sins of others, we think our sins deserve mercy, but those, not those sins, those other people. But the reality is, no sin deserves mercy. That's why it's called mercy. And the wonder is that God gives such mercy to heinous sinners like us through our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who paid the penalty for the sins of all who trust in him. No matter their background, no matter what they've committed. So that God remains just and the justifier of the ungodly. Because Christ pays the penalty for the sin. And so... You see, God is not unjust, as Jonah here accuses God of. But that's not the only accusation that Jonah's making against God. He's not only saying that you're an unjust God here, he's also saying that the Lord is unfaithful to his covenant with Israel. After all, Nineveh is the enemy of Israel. And has not God said in Exodus 23... I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Of course, the first part of that verse says, if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say. So sparing Nineveh is not being faithful to Israel, Jonah thinks. As I said, Jonah refers to Israel as my country. But in so thinking, Jonah forgets why God covenanted with Israel in the first place. Which was what? It was for the sake of the nations. For God's glory to be known among the nations. Moses' own intercession before the Lord in Exodus 32, when he's pleading with the Lord not to wipe out all of the rest of Israel, is this, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, Oh, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger. Relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they will inherit it forever. Do you see part of the very way which Moses pleads with God is show mercy to Israel so that Egypt will rightly understand who you are. <laughs> that they won't think that you brought them out just to destroy them. Spare Israel because you made a covenant promise to Abraham. Abraham, the one that you said you would surely bless and cause to multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. Why? Genesis 22, after, remember, Abraham's going to sacrifice Isaac, and, and the Lord says, stop, hold, now I know that you fear me. And he says to him later, I will surely bless you then. Multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. The blessings given to Abraham, the blessing to Israel for the purpose of blessing the nations. See, Jonah wanted to restrict God's mercy only to his own people. And while he proclaimed salvation belongs to the Lord with his lips, he believed salvation belongs to Israel and only Israel in his heart. Beloved, we can do the same thing. Can't we? We can restrict God's mercy only to those who are like us. And we can do it in different ways. Maybe only those of the same ethnicity or, or only those of the same nationality or only those of the same denomination or only those who haven't committed those heinous sins that we think are beyond the pale of God's mercy. 
And as we do that, we ourselves are committing the sin of partiality. But God shows no partiality. We are all equally undeserving of his grace and mercy. There's no one who's deserving more than someone else. No, we're all equally undeserving. So we see that Jonah's second accusation is false as well. But Jonah's heart is distorted by his anger, you see. And he does not see, he does not understand. And in verse 3 of his prayer, we finally come to his actual petition. And what is it? Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. It's the opposite of what we would expect. Whenever you have this prayer that begins, O Lord, you do expect a petition. The last time you hear that was in chapter 1, verse 14, with the sailors when they say, O Lord, let us not perish. And Jonah's saying, O Lord, let me perish. Why? You see, Jonah prefers death to life in a world where Israel's enemies are absolved by Israel's own God. And in another sense, he's again issuing an ultimatum to the Lord, attempting to force the Lord to choose between him and Nineveh. Destroy them or destroy me. Ironically, Jonah's heart is committing idolatry at this very moment. He believes he knows better than God what should happen to Nineveh. He sets himself up over God as a judge, and he's trying to control or manipulate God once again. And beloved, don't we do the same thing when things in our life don't go the way that we think that they should go? When we think we know better than God and are somehow wiser than God? When we accuse God of being unjust or unfaithful? Like Jonah, we actually deserve to die for this idolatry of heart. For our angry accusations against God. That's what we deserve. But again, what is this book all about? The mercy of God. And instead, God shows his searching mercy to Jonah once again. Again, he's merciful to him. By patiently probing Jonah's heart. By compassionately catechizing him. And asking him that question at the, in there in verse 4. Do you do well to be angry? See, that's the mercy of God. He doesn't crush Jonah as he deserves. But he calls him to self-examination. He calls him to consider his ways. To search his heart. To understand how he has gone astray. And to return to the Lord. And what Jonah should have done here is heed the words like the words of the prophet Joel. Which said, yet even now declares the Lord. Return to me with all your heart. With fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. For he is a gracious and merciful God. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. The very same words from the prophet Joel. But how does Jonah respond even to the Lord's continual holding out of his mercy, this patient probing, this compassionate catechizing. How does Jonah respond? He responds by remaining hard-hearted and sinfully stubborn in his anger. Furthermore, we can say this, he refuses to engage with God in this process of self-examination. It's like the beginning of the book all over again. Jonah chooses to remain silent and to run, to flee. In chapter 1, we're told three times that Jonah was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And fleeing from the presence of the Lord is what Jonah's doing here again as well. And you can see this in the text in two ways. First, notice in verse 5, it tells us that Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city. Now, that's just not a note about direction for those of us who are interested in geography. Now, going east is a motif in Scripture 
for fleeing from the presence of God. When Adam and Eve are cast out of the Garden of Eden, the place where they enjoyed God's special presence, they went east. The same with Cain. After he murdered Abel, he was sent away. And Genesis 4.16 says, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Those who built the Tower of Babel in rebellion against God's command to be fruitful and multiply and spread out on the earth and fill it, they're described as people migrating east. Genesis chapter 11. And Lot, when Lot parts ways with Abraham in Genesis 13, he chose for himself the Jordan Valley. He journeyed east towards Sodom and Gomorrah. You see, this movement east is a marker of humanity's drift away from God. And here it signals Jonah's continued rebellion and long-lasting anger as he continues to drift from God. And then notice as well in verse 5 where Jonah is located. It says he's in a place where he made a booth for himself. A booth. What should that be? bring to mind as we think of earlier scripture and the history of Israel. It's a reminder of the booths or the shelters that the Israelites had to make in the wilderness as they were journeying from Egypt to the promised land. Thus Jonah is in the desert with inhospitable conditions surrounding him. When Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord the first time, he was cast into the turbulent seas. And here he leaves the city and is in the arid desert. One commentator says, both environments symbolize chaos and death in biblical thought and correspond to Jonah's spiritual state. So Jonah is fleeing from the Lord to a place of death, a place of destruction. And the question is, why does he even remain near Nineveh at all? Why not just flee somewhere else or return to Israel? The end of verse 5 tells us he's there till he should see what should become of the city. You see, Jonah is so settled in his conviction that he believes judgment will still come. Either because Nineveh's repentance was not really real and won't last long, and they'll revert back to their wickedness and violence, and the Lord will judge them with fire, or because he's given to the Lord an ultimatum of sorts. Kill me or destroy Nineveh. And he thinks that God will change his mind and still judge Nineveh. He wants to see. You see, Jonah continues to persist in his anger, to stew in it, to let his heart and mind be consumed with it. And it's sad. It's sad to see Jonah seems to have reverted back to the state he was in at the beginning of the book after all that the Lord had brought him through, after all the mercy he's been shown. Consider how Jonah should have remembered that running from the presence of the Lord did not go well for him the first time. Consider how he should remember that the Lord pursued him with severe mercy and he was cast into the sea. Consider how he should remember how the Lord spared him from the bottoms of the sea and brought him back up to dry land and recommissioned him. But Jonah was so blinded by his own anger that he has forgotten the lessons what about you this evening? Are there ways in which you have forgotten the lessons that the Lord has taught you? Are there ways that you are trying to flee from the Lord as he's called you to examine your heart? Maybe in the reading of your scripture, sitting under the preaching of the word, he's been speaking to you, calling you to repent of certain sins. He's called you even to interrogate your own emotions that you would ask yourself before him, why am I angry? Am I doing well to be angry? Am I doing well to be afraid in this? Have you responded like Jonah, trying not to think about it, distracting yourself with much busyness by fleeing from the Lord? The Lord calls you this evening to stop running from him and to run to him. To engage with him instead of ignoring him. For he's a God full of mercy and compassion. 
Which leads us to our second point. We've seen the long-lasting anger of Jonah. But let's also see again the long-suffering compassion of the Lord. Once again, God would have been perfectly just to condemn and judge Jonah on the spot. After all, Jonah was accusing God himself of being unjust and unfaithful. But that's not what the Lord does. Once again, he pursues Jonah with his sovereign mercy. Do you see how long-suffering our Lord is through this whole book, all of this disobedience, all this running, and the Lord continues to pursue with his mercy? And this time he does it with an object lesson. If you're not going to listen to me with my words, I'm going to give you some pictures. Maybe you'll get that, Jonah. <laughs> some object lessons. I'm going to use a plant, a worm, and a wind. And we know that he intervenes then with his grace so that he can indirectly reveal Jonah's heart and teach him the truth of grace. I want you to notice that this shows the sovereignty of God once again over all things. In both verse 6, verse 7, and verse 8, the worm and the, the plant, the wind, all of those things are appointed, is the language, appointed by God. Points to God's sovereign control over all things. He is the sovereign over all creation. We've seen this already. In chapter 1, verse 4, it's the Lord who hurls the storm the great wind. In 117, he appoints the fish to swallow Jonah. And now he appoints these three aspects of his creation to be used as object lessons for Jonah's benefit and ours. Shows again, God is sovereign over all creation and over every detail of creation and every detail of our lives. From the large storms to the smallest plants and worms. And once again, we see the Lord marshalling his creation into the service of teaching his servant Jonah. So what is it that the Lord is teaching by these object lessons? First, consider the lesson of the plant. Abundant grace that exposes Jonah's heart. Abundant grace that exposes Jonah's heart. See, though Jonah had made a shelter for himself, the text tells us, the heat of the desert is still stifling. I was talking earlier with Robert about my, I think it was Robert, about my move this past July to Macon, Georgia. After being in Pennsylvania for the last six years, and if you know anything about July in Macon, Georgia, it is hot. And we were unloading the tractor trailer and it happened to be, of all things, the hottest day in Macon on record. <laughs> inside that truck it was probably 130 degrees I don't know and in a sense that's kind of what's going on with Jonah here he's under the shelter and sitting inside the shelter you get no breeze or no wind and so it would be incredibly oppressive to remain inside it just like it was oppressive to be inside that tractor trailer so Jonah actually is sitting probably outside of the shelter in the shade of the shelter so hopefully he could get at least a little breeze and survive. But God in his grace appoints a plant to grow up and provide more shade for Jonah. And the purpose is described there in verse 6. Um, he made it that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And if you note in the ESV there, it has a footnote 6. And it says, or to save him from his evil. Hmm. Do you see what's going on? This plant was a symbol of God's abundant and gracious provision. But it's also the means by which the Lord is seeking to save Jonah from evil. To save Jonah from the evil of his own heart. That's what's going on. And Jonah's response to the plant exposes his heart in a couple of ways. First, in verse 6, it says that after this plant comes up and he's under the shade, Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. What a contrast to Jonah's description in verse 1, where he's exceedingly angry. 
Now he's exceedingly glad. In other words, Jonah is as happy about the plant as he had earlier been angry about the Ninevites. And it exposes his greater concern for himself and his own comfort over against the souls of thousands of people made in the image of God in Nineveh. Ian Duguid says, Jonah would be quite content to see an entire city roast in hell, but he was overjoyed over a plant whose only purpose was to make his personal life a little easier. And this is a test for our own hearts as well. What makes you exceedingly glad? What makes you burst with joy? That reveals what you truly value in your heart. And it can reveal how we value ourselves, our comfort, our things, more than we value the souls of others. Listen to what Sinclair Ferguson says. He says, do we care more about the items in our gardens, the produce in our fields, or perhaps the contents in our garage or home than we do about our fellow men and women and the spread of the gospel to them? Do we care more in the last analysis about our own comforts and plans than about the evangelism of the world in our time? The grace of God to Jonah in the plant exposes his heart and it exposes ours as well. That's the lesson of the plant. But there's another lesson, the lesson of the worm and wind. And that is, it's a preview of judgment that exposes Jonah's heart. See, after Jonah has enjoyed the shade of this plant for a day, he's experiencing this comfort and this relief. The very next day, the Lord appoints a worm to destroy the plant. But that's not all. He also sends, the text tells us, a scorching east wind there in verse 8. This is called a, a Sirocco, a hot east wind. The commentator describes this this way. It's that which comes down from the mountains of Iran and is especially well known in the land of Israel. This wind can often be extremely oppressive, reaching speeds of 60 miles per hour. The same meteorological conditions are almost exactly the same represented in Santa Ana and the winds that have contributed to the worst wildfires in California. Both of these images, the worm and this wind that can bring fire are things, images related to God's judgment. Listen to the covenant curses in Deuteronomy 28. God says, you shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. Or the prophet Isaiah, how he describes God's judgment. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of all men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Think about how the Lord Jesus describes God's judgment. Mark chapter 9. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Do you see what's going on? The object lesson for Jonah is this. He is experiencing a preview of God's judgment. And by so doing, God was holding a mirror up to Jonah and asking him this question. Do you really want justice, Jonah? Do you really want fire from heaven to descend on those who disobey the Lord? You can't even handle a little hot wind. Do you really want to store up hot anger in your heart? As one commentator says, if Jonah wishes God to deal in strict justice with Nineveh, then he must be prepared to experience that strict justice himself. If, however, he wishes God to treat him mercifully, then he must be prepared to embrace the extension of God's mercy to others. You see, the Lord was challenging Jonah and his prideful anger, and he's inviting him into a deeper fellowship 
with God. Where he could acknowledge his own need of grace and see the Lord's amazing patience with him. And the Lord is challenging our hearts here tonight as well to stop, to remember the mercy that you've been shown to remember the depths of your own sin, the offense against God, and the heights of his love and mercy towards you each and every day, but supremely in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a challenge to have our heart to be a heart of compassion like his. But how often can we be like that steward in the parable of the unmerciful servant where we've been, been forgiven billions and billions of dollars of debt because of our sin, so to speak. And then we go over to our brother or sister or, or another person who owes us five cents and start to choke them. See, that's how Jonah responds to God's grace. The Lord has come to him a second time in this chapter with this probing and this catechizing of his heart so that in verse 9 what do we read God say after these these things Jonah responds by saying it's better for me to die than to live but God says do you do well to be angry for the plant and Jonah responds yes I do well to be angry angry enough to die Did Jonah ever learned the depths of God's compassionate mercy will we and that leads us to our final point. The lingering question for us. You see, the book of Jonah is different from most other books in that it ends with a question. It's interesting, the only other book that ends with a question is actually the book of Nahum, a book about the judgment of Nineveh. But here... The Lord comes a third time now in this very chapter to probe Jonah's hearts and ours. And he says, You pitied the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? You see, the Lord here is making an argument from the lesser to the greater. Jonah, you had compassion, pity for one plant, a created thing not made in God's image, one that you, Jonah, did not make, nor did you even cultivate it, and it was here for one day, and then it was gone, and you had compassion, pity for that plant. Whereas Nineveh is full of people made in my image, God says. 120,000, which is an expression for a multitude of innumerably large quantity of people. People that God had created, that he had been sustaining for their whole lives. People he has cared for. People, he says, that didn't have the same advantages that you've had, Jonah. You see, this phrase, they did not know their right hand from the left, is not a phrase in Scripture referring to children. No, it's a phrase referring to those who don't have access to special revelation. Israel had all the privileges of special revelation. Nineveh didn't even have that privilege. They are those who are lost in this world. And how Jonah answers the question is left unanswered for us here, at least in a direct way, in this book. We do not hear Jonah's response, but that's on purpose. Because what matters for us is not so much how Jonah answered that question from God, but how we answer the question that lingers at the end of this book. So, should God show compassion to the lost? Do you have compassion for the lost like God has compassion for the lost? Or are we more concerned with ourselves, with our things, 
so we have no concern for the lost. Are you too focused on yourselves to be concerned about the lost and dying around you in your own community here in Montgomery? Those around the church here, those downtown, those nearest. William Bockstein says, if the lives of community members are perceived to be less valuable than the lives of church members, the church will prioritize covenant nurture to the exclusion of community outreach. John Calvin said it this way, how difficult it is to perform the duty of seeking the good of our neighbor unless you leave off all thought of yourself and in a manner cease to be yourself. You will never accomplish it. How can you exhibit charity unless you renounce yourself and become wholly devoted to others? That's why Jesus said, if anyone would be my disciple and would come after me, what must you do? Die to yourself and follow him. Take up your cross and follow him. What are you devoted to? Who are you devoted to? Yourselves or others? Do you stop to consider the plight of the lost? Have you considered the previews of God's judgment that you have seen and even experienced in your own life? And thought about how there are never dying souls who do not have the privilege of special revelation right now. How they're without God, without hope in the world as you once were. How they're headed to eternal condemnation if they do not repent and believe on Christ. How there are over 3,000 language groups still in this world that have no access to the gospel in our generation. Do you think about the reality of hell? Have you ever considered the previews of hell that you've been given on earth, even the times of depression, the times of despair, the consuming anger that blinds you, the loneliness, all a foretaste of what those in hell will experience for all eternity? See, Jonah responds to that preview and he says, that's their problem. And God responds by saying, no, it's your problem too. It's your problem too. Should we not have compassion to the lost and condemned? Should not their problems be ours too? Turn to God and see how he has compassion. You see, God did not say as he looked down on this lost and dying world, that's their problem. No, God said, that's my problem too. So much so that he sent his son and his son did not experience just a preview of God's judgment. But he experienced the full force of it in our place. And he showed true compassion. Our Savior is able to have sympathy with us. Empathy with us in a sense. He has feeling which goes out toward one who is in trouble, he sees us in our distress, in our lost condition, and his heart came out for us so much so that he came to this world to die for us. And he's the one who shows us how wide God's mercy should be. He's the one who shows us the wideness of God's compassion. You see, the true measure is the length of the outstretched arms of Christ on the cross. The cross of Calvary, where he died for people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language who committed every kind of sin you can think. All who come to him will be saved. That's how wide God's mercy is. 
That's how wide God's mercy has been to you. And he's the God who calls you to show the wideness of his mercy in this world. May that motivate you. Not merely law, but gospel. This good news of God's mercy, would that propel you as a church all the more, propel you as missionaries all the more, however much time we have left on this earth, to use every second, every moment, every dollar, all that we have, every breath, to proclaim the excellencies of him who has shown us that he is the God of mercy. Amen. Let's pray. God, you have shown us your mercy once again tonight. We could have been those who are right now in a different part of the world, having no access to your gospel, not knowing anything about your son, not knowing anything about your great mercy. But again, you given to us this wondrous revelation of yourself, of who you are, and of the way of salvation in Christ. You've shown it to us yet again. So Lord, cause it to sink deeply into our hearts. Cause it to fill the crevices of our hearts that haven't been filled yet with the reality of your mercy. And make us all the more merciful that people would see and say, what a God they serve. What kind of God is this? I want to know him. I want to come to him and receive such mercy. Lord, do this. Do this tonight and in the days ahead, and we would give you all the glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.